Welcome to another episode of Social Justice Matters, the podcast from Social Justice Ireland. My name is Suzanne Rogers and I'm a research and policy analyst with Social Justice Ireland. As regular listeners will know at this point, we release three different types of podcasts. There's our 10-minute lesson series, aiming to educate and inform listeners on particular areas of policy, giving brief overview of somewhere in the range, 8 to 15 minutes, hitting on the key points that people really need to know. There's our seminar series, which provides opportunities to listen back to some of the most important presentations at past events. And there's our interview series, where we talk to policy experts across a range of topics. This is one of those. So in June, we released our policy brief on education and COVID-19. In this, we would look at the impact of COVID-19 on education at primary level and second level in Ireland. So to coincide with World Youth Skill Days, in this episode, my friend and colleague Michelle Murphy, also research and policy analyst with Social Justice Ireland, will discuss the findings and the subsequent policy proposals. We hope you enjoy it. So Michelle, you've looked at education over the last year, specifically the impact of COVID on education and I suppose the, the, the result in school closures and what that meant for students. So can you maybe just give us a, a brief overview of, I suppose, what those kind of school closures have meant for some for some students and the learning losses? Yes, thanks, Suzanne. So uh, this policy brief, uh, Social Justice Matters, looks at education and COVID-19. And I suppose specifically what we look at is the past year and the impact of the COVID-induced school closures at primary and second level in particular, and what impact they have had and will have on students and with a particular focus on disadvantaged students and the impact that these closures will have on, you know, the, the progress that has been made to date on addressing educational disadvantage. So what we found is that as a result of the school closures and the loss of learning, um, so this goes from students from first class up to sixth year, the leaving cert, is that the learning gap between um, rich and poor will grow. So that that gap that remains, despite progress that has been made and all the work that's been done in their schools, this is still an achievement gap and an attainment gap between students from a disadvantaged background and their peers. So that, that gap is going to grow. And even though every student will be impacted and every student will suffer sort of uh, lifetime uh, income losses and learning losses, the impacts will be greater in terms of learning and in income losses for disadvantaged students and that a lot of the progress that we have made to date and a lot of you know hard work has gone in and desk schools there's been a lot of resourcing put in I mean we could do significantly more but the I suppose the challenge is that a lot of this progress will be reversed until unless we start looking at what the appropriate policies and investments that could be put in place now to, I suppose, mitigate the worst of the impacts of the loss of learning as a result of the school closures. And I suppose education is so important because it is one of the most important factors in reducing the risk of poverty across your lifetime. So this is more than just, you know, maybe getting a C instead of a B or getting your third choice on the CAO. Like this is, this is something that's going to sit with people across their entire lives. Absolutely. And I think that's that that's the really important point that um, education, I suppose, it's the most important individual factor in terms of reducing your risk of poverty as an adult. Um, it's also in, it's inextricably linked to your earnings. So the higher 
the level of your education, the higher your lifetime earnings are going to be. It's also really important in terms of reducing child and household poverty because um, as we see educational attainment um, is strongly linked to the educational attainment of your parents and there is still an intergenerational transmission of educational disadvantage in this country. And so it's not just, as you say, it's not about getting the C instead of the B or the points. It's about the loss of learning as a result of, you know, the two COVID-induced school closures that we've had in this country are, is going to follow students throughout their lifetime. So you're looking at about a, a 3% loss in earnings for an average student throughout your lifetime as a result of this interruption in, in your education. If you're a disadvantaged student, then the loss of earnings will be greater because the, in terms of um, educational level of change, the lower, I suppose, your educational level, the less likely you are to be in employment or the more likely the job that you're in is to be low paid. You generally have a lower level of health. You generally have poor accommodation. So I suppose throughout the, the, your lifetime, then the, the impact of a lower level of education is with you. Uh, permanently and it, it impacts on all areas of your life and then as a result this is obviously a cost to the state because if more people are unemployed or if people are earning less throughout their lifetime then you generate less revenue through the exchequer if people have lower skill levels then productivity will be lower uh, you'll have more people who are reliant on social welfare for example so there's a cost to the individual and a cost to the state and I suppose the uh, international estimates around the cost to the state the OECD estimates a loss of about 1.5% of GDP for the remainder of this century. And, and that's at the lower end. So the loss in terms of GDP will be greater if your education system is slow to respond to prior levels of performance. So that's why it's really important that we sort of look at, well, what do we need to do now? Looking at the students that are have been impacted by this and that you know haven't completed the leaving cert that are still within the primary and second level system, what things do we need to do in terms of the curriculum to mitigate the worst of the losses? How do we decide what are the skills that they really need to have, and how do we adjust the curriculum to make sure that they have these skills? What sort of resources and supports do you need to put in to reduce class sizes, for example, to reduce the pupil-teacher ratio? to make sure that students with special educational needs actually get to have a full school day and are fully supported in terms of personnel and resourcing in their schools and that there's a school place available for them. And how do we support deaf schools in terms of the work that they're doing in trying to mitigate educational disadvantage? So I suppose those are the kind of things you'd be hoping would be um, happening at a policy level and the types of discussions we would be hoping are happening at a policy level now because I suppose this is going to be one of the um, one of those um, manifestations or outcomes of COVID that is slower to manifest itself you know it's not as obvious as the the unemployment for figures for example or the number of people on PUP or the wage subsidy scheme but it will manifest itself in a more medium to long-term way but the impact will be just as significant there was a lot made of the digital divide mm -hmm. for school children so children who had access to machines at home or had unfettered access I'm thinking of say this there's children in my son's class who have you know really large families you know 10 11 kids even if you had a machine in the house you know you, you, nobody has 11 machines nobody has 11 tablets nobody has that much broadband to be able to homeschool 
11 or 12 kids. But what was interesting, I suppose, about the digital divide as well is that there was a presumption that children and young people were much more technologically savvy than older people. But what they found was that's all very well in terms of YouTube and TikTok and Snapchat. But when it came to things like Teams and when it came to things like uploading homework, Google Docs, that there was very little you know, these young people struggled with the technology and there's very, very little support there. But that's, I mean, it's the, it's the pupil-teacher ratio, I suppose, is kind of where I'm going with that, that if, if there are children in the class who um, aren't grasping concepts quickly, it's a lot easier to give them the time when there's maybe only 20 children in the class as opposed to 29. And, event, you know, we are looking at a surplus of teachers by 2036 is that mm-hmm. correct yeah so now is the time as you said as well to to address the gaps in these children's learning by reducing pupil teacher you know that the, the ratio of classes because a lot of these a lot of this you know learning that they do i mean i had to google how to you know divide fractions i couldn't remember if they've got practical subjects like technology or tech drawing or woodwork that's very, very, very difficult to do digitally online at home. So we really need to put a huge amount of resources into catching up, I suppose, over the next couple of years. We do. Um, and, it's huge. and I suppose there's two key issues you mentioned there. The first one is the digital divide. And I suppose this was the big experiment with online learning mm-hmm. and while the fact that we were able to move to online instruction was great, what it did really was expose the limitations with online learning, particularly for younger students, because what it really is, it's the instruction and explanation from your teachers and being in a learning environment. So being in that classroom, so you're learning not just from your teachers, but from your peers and your teachers can pick up on all the the social cues that you just can't pick up on you know, and when you're in a Teams meeting or a Google Classroom or a Zoom meeting, it's, it's those cues. And it's been able to spot, as you mentioned, spot who's facing challenges with a particular issue, spot who's progressing well or not progressing well and make the intervention. Then it's very difficult to make that intervention digitally. And even looking at the CSO report on, you know, the impact of COVID, you know, students up to 50% of them felt that they didn't, you know, get enough. Mm -hmm. Um, They felt their learning was impacted by COVID and they felt, you know, that they didn't get enough. The instructions, for example, weren't enough. They didn't, you know, their parents weren't able to sufficiently support them either because obviously you need the time, you need the, as you say, you need the the laptop or the tablet or whatever to help. But ultimately, you know, you learn from your peers and you learn in an environment of learning and having the, you know, your instructor or your teacher there who's able to pick up on all your cues and immediately intervene. That was one of the key losses this year. And what the international evidence does show and what we also know works in an Irish context, because we've, we've done it in debt schools, is keeping the pupil teacher ratio low, particularly at the youngest classes, so in primary level, and keeping your cl- average class size down below 20 we have an average class size of 25 the eu average is 20 but if you keep your class sizes below 20 
and get your pupil to teach your ratio down. That is when you can make the best interventions because the teacher, the educator has the time to interact with all of the students, particularly those students who might be struggling. And we do know, and the department has some very good projections on this, the Department of Education in terms of teach, um, you know, student intake, where it's going to be, when it's going to be, and then also teacher demand and supply. And what we know is that by 2036, we're going to have a surplus of teachers at post-primary and primary level um, if no actions are taken now. But that gives us such an opportunity to look at what are the existing resources we have in terms of personnel and in terms of finance and how can we best utilize them, best make use of those resources to reduce our class sizes, to reduce the pupil teacher ratio, because that is what makes the biggest impact in terms of educational interventions. And that's the kind of planning we need to be doing now uh, in terms of the department, in terms of the, you know, the budgetary context as well, is how you use the resources that you already have and that you've already put into the system to mitigate any, you know, the impact that is going to be uh, felt by all students, to mitigate the impact on educational disadvantage as well, and that will probably, the impact that COVID will probably reverse much of the progress that we have made. Use the resources that we have in the best uh, possible way and so it, it's it's vital that we start this planning now and that we don't find ourselves in a situation that we often do in this country that we know something is coming and is going to happen but we don't really begin to interact with it or engage with it until it's almost too late so I mean we should be we know 2036 is the year 2021 is the time we should be planning for it not 2030 for example and that also goes for, um, you know, students with uh, additional needs and special educational needs, because we already know we hear every September the huge challenges their parents have in trying to find them a school place. Uh, and then the huge challenges that, that they faced as a result of COVID because their education has been completely curtailed. And I suppose what's important to remember is that a quarter of those children with special needs, so who either had a developmental or an intellectual disability, they were already on a short school day pre-COVID. Just think about that. That is astounding for them and those families. So they were not getting the full benefit of an education, as is their, you know, their right, uh, because of, as a result of, you know, their additional needs. And and so on, light, on top of a short school day, as a result of COVID, you know, significant closures, and then not all of them were able to or have been able to re-engage in education depending on you know th their own I suppose um health or the health of their family um there's a commitment uh you know to implement the the Epson report and we know how much that is going to cost there has been you know increased resourcing and special needs assistance in recent budgets but we still haven't seen I suppose the the resourcing put in to ensure that you know in a particular area so take for example Dublin 12 that there are sufficient school places available at primary and second level in Dublin 12 for students with special educational needs in that area and that goes for you know every region not just in Dublin but all around the country that you know families don't have to make huge journeys on the round trip journeys on a daily basis 
just so that their child can actually have an education. And, you know, despite us was the heart-rending stories we read about and hear about, um, we need more than just uh, additional resources into SNEs. You need the other resourcing and supports that school needs to ensure that, yes, you have the required number of staff with the right qualifications, but you can also run the right program. You also have the right resources to meet the needs of these pupils because they do have needs. But we know what these needs are. Um, the, you know, there's significant research and reports there in an Irish context as to what the needs are and what the resources and supports that are required. But it, it, in terms of resourcing, ensuring that we actually put those supports in place and using the plannings and projections that the department has. So we know at what stage of the education cycle these children are and to even ensure that the, the, the transition supports there for them when they leave primary education and move into post-primary. And then what, it, you know, and then that their lives and their education do not stop when post-primary or second level finishes. They have just as so much of a, as a right to progress as a student who doesn't have special education needs. And, you know, I suppose we've, we've limited success and planning around that. And that's another area in, that we, we really need to do some planning and some investment and some resourcing in. You know, there's excellent examples in terms of uh, uh, Trinity run an excellent program for, for those students. But, you know, this is just a very small program. You know, we need to look at how you might expand that um, with the education, you know, further and higher education providers around the country, for example. And, you know, what, what other, I suppose, innovations and programs that, you know, we can establish and put in place so that they're learning um does not stop once they you know once they finish the the second level cycle that they also have the opportunity to go on that's really my own personal experience over the last say you know year and a part of trying to trying to maintain some sort of connection with the school and educate at home was how bad i was at it and and you know there is a need like a teacher is a profession for a reason you know for a reason they are they're trained educators this is what they do day in and day out and that's really the <clears throat> one of the key points for me is that you know these children know they feel the lack of learning they feel that negative impact on their learning despite whatever supports they may have had at home so it, for me it really really just hit home just how important schools are just how important teachers are and especially as you said for children with additional needs I mean if you have some hope of maybe you know walking to a curriculum with your child and I, I'm not a trained educator if your child has additional needs you're not trained you know you're not a professional in terms of speech and language therapy or physical therapy so all of those you know they missed they've missed what a full year of school I suppose all in so that that's a lot you know that is a huge amount of ground to make up so as you said I mean if we just maybe run down quickly to our policy priorities then to try and right the wrongs for want of a better word yes and I mean they're you know they're not um they're not rocket science these priorities and they're, they're things that we can do um and it, it's just it requires the resourcing to be put in place. So, I mean, the first thing is to use, we spoke about the projections there in terms of teacher supply and demand. So to use those projections about student enrollment, where those students are going to be, if they have special educational needs or not, 
and the projections you have in terms of staffing, that should inform your investment and what investments you're going to make in the education system as a whole. It should inform your plans for how you are going to use your existing resources as well as new resources, because it's not only existing resources that will do this, but you can utilize your existing resources better to plan for reducing class sizes, particularly focus, start the focus now at primary level and get them down below 20. Reduce the pupil teacher ratios. We know to reduce the pupil teacher ratio by one point, it costs about 14 and a half million euros a year. We know how much that costs, right? So look at how we're going to reduce the PTRs and can you use your existing supply model to make uh, to make inroads there, and also to make sure that the the education system really does have all the resources it needs to meet our national ambitions. I mean, if you read any of our, our national plans, the economic recovery plan um, that was just launched recently, you know, we rely hugely on our education system, you know, to make us attractive to foreign direct investment, but also to produce well-rounded individuals who will participate in societies, who can participate in their community, who, you know, contribute to the exchequer in terms of employment and who contribute to our, like, our social, economic and environmental development, who are engaged citizens. We rely on the education system for that. If you want the education to supply, system supply, you know, those individuals, then you have to resource it fully. Looking at class sizes, we know the key, the evidence is there in an Irish context. If you keep them below 20, then you can address a lot of, you know, you can meet the needs of those students who are perhaps struggling. You make a huge impact in terms of educational disadvantage. So we need to keep a focus on keeping primary class sizes in particular below 20 and ensuring particularly the DESH schools, the band one and two schools, have additional resources to implement their numeracy and literacy strategies. Because despite progress that has been made, and we have made progress, the performance of students in deaf schools in terms of literacy, numeracy and science is still lower than their peers, despite the progress. So that is of a concern. So, you know, we need to maintain the focus on literacy and numeracy outcomes. So you should make educational outcomes for students from disadvantaged communities a priority, especially in terms of resourcing. And then finally, to support schools to ensure that they have the required number of qualified staff and the necessary programs and supports and resources to meet the needs of pupils with special educational needs and to ensure that we have sufficient school places for all of the children with special educational needs in the country who require a school place. Um, that, you know, that's something that that's also a cost, but we all know that no matter at what point uh, in the life cycle you invest in education, you generate a return. So in terms of investing in education, it is one of those no brainers. You always generate a return. But the earlier you invest, the greater the return, because obviously people will have greater earnings, less reliance on the social protection system, better health outcomes, better housing outcomes, for example. So the guidance is there, you know, investing it early childhood, primary level, second level, at all levels is vital because you generate return. But the argument, I suppose, for reducing the class sizes in particular at primary level is very, very strong because you are going to generate the better returns there. I think I might finish off, Michelle, with a quote from a book called What We Owe Each Other, A New Social Contract by Manu Shafiq. 
And what she says here is one way or another, we must find a way to give more weight to the voices and interests of younger and future generations. I think that's really important. Like we're designing policies for people who don't have political voices yet. And what she says then is otherwise the social contract that shapes the future will be designed exclusively by those who will not live to see it with no input from those who will. So I think that's 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 your entire proposal here. I think summed up. I think absolutely, Suzanne. I, that's a, a great way to end the podcast because it's these young people that are going to be dealing with the impact of climate change, the impact of the digital transition, the impact of any future pandemics. Not us. They are the ones that are. We will be hoping will be in a position to you know, come to grips with the challenges that they face. So it's up to us to implement the policies now to ensure that their, their generation is not at a disadvantage, that in fact, we provide the resources, social, social, economic and environmental for that generation to ensure that they can thrive and make a better society and make a better life for themselves, not to consistently be dealing with um, the impact of whatever poor policies that we have implemented, but then they are left uh, to reap the rewards from. So I think that's a, an excellent way to end uh, the podcast. Suzanne. Thank you, Michelle. Thank you for listening to this podcast. I hope you found it useful. If you have any ideas for future podcasts, any topics that you'd like us to explore or develop, please feel free to email us at secretary at socialjustice.ie with your suggestions. Until next time, stay safe.